0: Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today.
1: Welcome to the second part of our two-part episode with Dr. Christian Barton, covering the JOSPT clinical practice guideline on patellofemoral pain. If you missed the first episode, I highly recommend you stop, go back, and check it out. For those who just need a quick refresher before we get into treatments, the main four categories of patients who present with patellofemoral pain can typically be subgrouped into overuse or overload, muscle performance deficits muscle coordination and movement pattern deficits, as well as mobility impairments. Now, Dr. Barton was also kind enough to walk us through an additional two categories that, in his experience, are worth looking at during your evaluation to make sure you're addressing each and every potential contributing factor to your patient's rehabilitation. And those two are psychological factors as well as lifestyle factors. Once again, welcome to the second part of our episode on patellofemoral pain with Dr. Christian Barton. Without further ado, let's get to the treatment recommendations.
2: So we talked about the f- those four categories, though, and and the way that they go into treatment. So let's go, actually, dive into the treatment part- portion of the CPG. And I want to hear what are the like what are the recommended what ha- what is research backing up for effective treatment interventions for this.
3: So you sort of mentioned applying these things to life in general, and I think if we take a step back, musculoskeletal pain. If you look at clinical practice guidelines more broadly, they'll typically recommend education exercise weight management for people who need it that's kind of the key thing of of musculoskeletal pain in general now what's really interesting about patellofemoral pain is we have zero evidence to support the efficacy and effectiveness of education zero so there is no trial that would compare education intervention to wait and see or usual care that research it doesn't exist I don't think that means we can't provide education, right? I think that's what's a really important point about this conversation. And we certainly, in the clinical practice guideline, education is one of the first recommendations that we kind of make. And we'll come back to what that should involve in a second. If we go to exercise therapy, then we have really strong evidence that exercise therapy is a beneficial treatment. And it's beneficial compared to usual care. It's beneficial in combination with other adjunctive therapies compared to placebo Treatment. So, there's a nice RCT by one of my mentors, Kay Crosley, way back in 2002, which provided exercise therapy, manual therapy, taping, and compared it to a sham treatment of t- detuned ultrasound, a whole range of different things that made the person think they were getting physio. And we see that it comes out as being beneficial. So, exercise therapy is absolutely an essential part. Now, the question you then ask is what type of exercise? Because exercise therapy, We can think about aerobic exercise, we can think about resistance training, we can think about functional exercise, arguably gait retraining could be considered an exercise therapy, and we'll come back to that. All we can really conclude from the literature is that exercise therapy targeting the hip and knee is beneficial, and it's beneficial for pain, it's beneficial for disability, beneficial for function. The reason we can't say that strength training or muscle power training is beneficial or what type is that the exercise programs in the literature are so poorly described in general that we actually can't replicate what was done. And so we published a paper on that a few years ago. Typically, the programs as well, and this is good and bad, the programs are typically short duration. So they typically go from four to max 12 weeks, but most of them are sort of four to eight or 10 weeks programs. And if we think about resistance training of trying to address the strength impairments and muscle power impairments that we might see in someone who's got pain, where it might take you three or four weeks to build their confidence to engage in exercise, we're never going to hit the loading that would improve muscle size, muscle bulk, muscle power. So I don't think we really know the potential value of longer term resistance training that might address strength and muscle power. Nonetheless, lower level resistance training, which typically what seems to happen in these studies seems to be beneficial. I think the other important consideration from the evidence that we can take around exercise is we have many patients come to us in an irritable setting. So they've got a really stirred up knee, And what we can see from the literature is that if we have a hip-targeted exercise program, it's probably gonna lead to better outcomes than knee-targeted exercise program in the short term. So in that first month or so. And that makes logical sense because if you start doing a knee-targeted exercise, if you're not sure where to start and you've got that irritated knee patient in front of you, it's probably worth starting at the hip. But in the longer term, certainly combining those two things together is important. What we couldn't put into the guidelines is anything to do with more distal exercise therapy, so calf retraining. So, thinking about gastroxyleus, foot and ankle strength and muscle power, because the evidence isn't there, it hasn't been tested. So, it's not to say that it's not beneficial. Certainly, in my own clinical setting, I find it very valuable, especially for more high level athletes. So, thinking about doing uh, rehab of soleus, we've seen calf raises, doing heel raises, all those types of things become quite important and loading them up and working on power. but the evidence at the moment, we couldn't make recommendations specifically for that. Patella taping is an interesting and controversial area um, amongst clinicians. If we look at the research and the data, and if we want to apply patella taping, it could certainly help in the short term. But the important caveat with that is that. It only helps in the short term. Longer term, it probably doesn't make any difference. So similar to your EMG, et cetera. And it probably needs to take some tailoring of that taping for it to be effective. So when we look at short-term pain reduction, if we tailor it to the person, we seem to be able to have a better outcome in terms of faster and a better recovery in the short term. Now, by tailoring what we're talking about in the studies, they consider tilt, glide, and rotation of patella. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we can assess that reliably either because we can't. So what you typically do is just play around with using your tape to try and augment some more glide, less glide, more rotation, less rotation. Find the taping technique that is most beneficial for that person's pain. So have an assessment where you test their squat and then retest it. And if you find a technique that's helpful, then that's what we run with and you go with that. And that seems to help in that first month or so in terms of hastening the recovery it's not the big fish the big fish is the exercise braces are interesting when we look at uh, evidence for it there's no evidence to suggest that a knee brace is going to help with pain and function in in the short or longer term so they're not recommended in the guideline i will say a caveat to the listeners though in i have many patients come to me and They swear the braces help them a lot and and they feel that they give them a lot of support. So I don't tell people to stop wearing braces. That's important because if we use a brace and it helps someone to engage in exercise and to load their knee more, that's going to help them to get stronger. It's going to help them to recover. And hopefully in time, they won't need that brace. So that's really important. Occasionally, I might use a brace in someone who is finding taping really helpful. I'll typically go to taping because I find it more beneficial and they can find a brace that kind of replicates what they're trying to do with taping. But by and large, I would not recommend too many people get a brace from the outset, because typically we've got other things to, to focus on. The other thing that braces can be really helpful for, and this is probably more so in your post-traumatic knee injury population who might subsequently have patellofemoral pain, is it often helps with knee joint confidence. So it might not change their pain, but it makes them more confident to load their knee and, and to exercise. And that's certainly something that comes out in the literature as well. So when we're making recommendations in the guideline, we're making them based on the potential for that treatment to have an effect on pain and function. But of course, there's so many other things to consider and confidence being one of them. And sometimes a brace can help with that as well. And then if we move to another potential, I guess, adjunctive treatment for exercise that might help someone engage more in exercise, foot orthoses is also an interesting topic. Now, there isn't any trials that compare a prefabricated, so one that you might take off the shelf, which you can customize, by the way. So you can do adding posts and various things to that and comparing that to what's commonly considered customized or molded orthoses so there's no research comparing those two things within patellofemoral pain population the really strong randomized controlled trials coming out of university of queensland group and bill vincenzino and natalie collins and more recently mark matthews use a pre-fabricated version which is customized to optimize comfort now when we Look at the research that they've produced from that, it has a really beneficial effect in the short term compared to a sham intervention. The number needed to treat is between two and four. So, what that means is you could prescribe somewhere between two and four athletics, and you would have one additional person have a really positive effect from that intervention. And in Australia, I'm not sure what they might cost in other parts of the world, but in Australia, this device to buy wholesale might cost $40 and you might sell it for $80. So, it's not an expensive intervention. So, in my clinical setting, I would typically start with exercise, and then we might consider using an orthotic. Now, there is some research looking at how to identify those who might benefit from an orthotic. There's some studies that would indicate that someone with more foot mobility is more likely to benefit from that foot orthotic. In Mark Matthew's study, which I just mentioned before, they actually tested this really well, and it wasn't a predictor of someone doing better with an orthotic. My own PhD a number of years ago, working in a biomechanics lab, we looked at complicated 3D motion analysis. We also did clinical measures of foot mobility and foot posture. We didn't find much at all that would indicate that an orthotic is likely to benefit someone more if they've got a more mobile foot. The thing that we found to predict it, and I'd encourage you using your clinic, and we sort of talk about this briefly in the guideline, is if you have a re- immediate reduction in pain during a squatting task or an activity that's painful, then at 12 weeks, you're more likely to have a, had a benefit, beneficial effect of that orthotic device so keeping it really simple like that is probably the way to go so that's orthotic so they're, they're the things that we have some evidence to really support and then the final one is gait retraining which is an emerging area that most people probably starting to become familiar with so you might have a runner who's got patellofemoral pain we might try and change the way they run and the common interventions that people consider are changing strike pattern so from a rear foot strike to a non-rear foot strike or forefoot strike and increasing step rate and cadence There's some small randomised controlled trial evidence that indicates that changing from a rear foot strike to a non rear foot strike might be beneficial for someone in the short term in terms of reducing pain, patellofemoral pain. But the caveat to that is, it also is likely to increase ankle pain. So even in that in the study that's been done, there was report that around one quarter of the participants had some medial ankle pain as a result of that intervention and that makes sense we can't magically make loads disappear so if you're going to use gait retraining for your population you need to be really careful you don't just shift load somewhere else and cause a new injury the other interventions from gait retraining perspective uh things like step rate as i mentioned which there's some case series that indicates adding that to an education program it probably doesn't make much difference. There's also things like changing hip reduction and queuing people to open their knees, which has been researched again in case series, which might be worth considering, but no randomized controlled trials to test this out properly. And then there's a whole lot of different expert opinion. So we've done some qualitative work in this space, which indicates maybe you can consider proximal mechanical changes, which might shift some load away from the knee as well. We could probably talk, going into the clinical reasoning around that for a long time it's probably a whole other episode to chat about so i won't dive too deeper but i think if you do use gait retraining use it really cautiously and, and make sure that you're not going to cause a new injury is probably a really important thing to consider
2: it has to be accompanied by some strength or like you can't just like change it without changing something else
3: you right so that's our more active interventions that kind of covered in the guideline and then we have some passive therapies which Despite probably their wide use, some people might pick up our guideline and say, oh, I don't agree with this guideline. I'm just going to put it down because there's a lot of things in here that I'm being told not to do. So if we'll talk through that a little bit, I think it's quite valuable to do. So the first thing to discuss is dry needling and acupuncture. When we look at the research, we, we don't have the evidence to support that adding dry needling to an exercise program is beneficial. So it's not dissimilar to what we see with EMG biofeedback. So that doesn't mean that your own clinic experience doesn't indicate that you do dry kneading on someone and they don't have improvements in their pain and tell you thanks for doing that I feel great after that but the point is that it's only transient and it doesn't seem to make any difference to a quality exercise program in the longer term. So our recommendation in the guideline was not to use that. Now, if you do use it as an adjunct, that might be beneficial, but you certainly shouldn't be using it in in isolation. And one of the key things about it is if you're spending 25 minutes of a 30 minute session doing dry needling or acupuncture, and then you're spending five minutes lip service to some education and exercise, you're probably not doing your patient justice. They're probably not going to do the exercise program well, and they're probably not going to be able to change their lifestyle, et cetera, and things that might help. So that's that point. And it probably carries for all of these things. Now, manual therapy is commonly used in combined or multimodal intervention studies in in physical therapy practice. But when we actually tease it out and we say, does adding manual therapy, whether that be the knee, the lumbar spine, a whole range of areas, adding that to exercise therapy programs, does that help? The answer to that question is no, it doesn't seem to help. It doesn't seem to make any difference to pain and disability outcomes. Again, that doesn't mean it might not help that individual person in front of you in that immediate term, but over a number of weeks, it's not likely to add a lot of value to your treatment and to your rehabilitation for that person. So. I think it's important that we don't necessarily throw the baby out with the bath water, so to speak. And there might be some circumstances and settings where it is helpful to get someone on board, to help them to engage with exercise, et cetera. But you need to be really clear and honest with your patient that this is not the long-term solution. So again, don't spend 25 minutes on manual therapy and five minutes on the important stuff. So I think that's really important. And then we have other things like electrophysical agents or biophysical agents. I think we term them in the Clinical practice guidelines. So these are things like ultrasound, interferential, even things like heat and cold. And it's the same story. These things really don't add any value to exercise, so they're not a recommended treatment from the guideline. I said we'd circle back to patient education. I think what's really important about patient education, although it doesn't have evidence of effectiveness or efficacy, a really interesting review by a postdoc who who works with us at La Trobe, Danilo de Oliveira Silva we actually compared patient education to exercise therapy because there's many studies that do that. This was actually published in JSPT. The pain and function outcomes or subjective function outcomes are very similar between those two interventions. So it doesn't seem like education is inferior to exercise therapy. The caveat to that is the education interventions are probably not what we consider optimal patient education interventions in the trials, and the exercise therapy interventions are also not what we consider as optimal exercise therapy interventions in the trials. So I guess to to make the point that if we know that exercise therapy is more beneficial to usual care or wait and see, And education is not inferior to that, then we can pretty confidently speculate that providing some patient education is is going to be beneficial to that person. So then the question is, what should we provide? From the research studies that have been done, which show some reasonable outcomes, it's things like load management. It's things like educating someone about how to actively manage their condition and self-manage their condition, not do too much too soon, those types of things giving them education and reassurance about the condition, about what might be causing it, those types of things. What hasn't been tested all that well in the literature is education around addressing fear of pain, fear of damage, education and lifestyle support to address weight management and those types of things. So although we don't have evidence for those things, we do have evidence in other musculoskeletal conditions and conditions like persistent knee pain and knee osteoarthritis in older populations. So we can't make recommendations in our guideline based on patellofemoral pain population, but I think we can maybe extend beyond the guideline that was published and say, these are probably important things that we also need to consider and address in our clinical setting. So address the fear of pain, address the fear of damage, address... Um, someone's diet and sleep and those types of things or bring in other professionals who can help with that. These are all going to be potentially important things for this population.
2: Not doing passive modalities, that seems to be a... uh across the board recommendation, not super helpful there. Um, but then for things like, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's the CPG saying that like things like taping, foot orthoses, gate retraining, dry needling, manual therapy. It's all like there's more, well, there's more, there's better research for the foot orthoses, taping and gate retraining, but it depends on how your patient presents. If your patient's hypomobile, then may, they have a hypomobile patella, then doing some manual therapy on their patella potentially could help them but most other people maybe it wouldn't especially if they don't present with a hypomobile patella if their gait isn't affected then maybe that's not the treatment for them if their foot mechanics aren't at play uh, you like you you really have to examine your patient find out what's actually contributing to that pain and then treat that um so there's definitely not a one size fits all and even if you're in one category of even, I know you I know you want the six categories, but if we just focus on the four that are in the CBG, even if they're just in one of those categories, you still can't even say if, if they're in this category, then you can only do this because only educating about overuse and overload, we know doesn't actually work either. So there, it has to be a combination and you have to use your clinical judgment to be able to determine that.
3: Absolutely right. And I think the short message is that life is a bell curve. Every person is on a bell curve. You take all those factors and everyone's on a different place on that bell curve and we combine them together. Every single person is unique. And so you got to treat that unique person in front of you. And if we circle back to the when to use adjuncts and, and how to use them, what often happens is people make a hypothesis about what's driving their condition. They apply these adjuncts and then they send people on their way. And hope for the best. Mm -hmm. Whereas perhaps the best approach is still to do your same assessments to develop your hypothesis about what might be contributing. When you apply an adjunct like taping or like an orthotic or even a manual therapy, retest a functional activity or a functional task or often the exercise program you're trying to provide to them. And if the exercise that you're providing to them becomes easier as a result of those interventions, then they're a very sensible intervention for that person. If it doesn't become easier or their pain or symptoms doesn't change in that immediate term, then move on. Your hypothesis was wrong. You got the hypothesis wrong and that's okay. That's how we learn. So just move on.
2: I love that. That's a, yeah, it's a, it's a humble approach and it's important, but overall, you still have to do exercise therapy. That's the most important. And that's the biggest takeaway in some way or another. you got to get them to do some exercise therapy because that will help them. Yep, correct. And you need to talk to them about all their other factors because humans are humans. Christian, Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. That was beautifully laid out. I think it's really going to help clinicians. Again, this very common thing that people will walk into the clinic with it's, I think it's just makes it a little bit more simple. So thanks for very effectively summarizing the CPG.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having
1: me. So one last time, we want to thank Dr. Christian Barton for coming on the show, sharing his time, his experience, and his knowledge with all of us and all of you. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights.